0: Let's pray, and then we'll jump back into our study of John. Father, your grace and mercy is overwhelming. Even in the midst of the most horrific and unspeakable tragedies of life, your grace and your mercy are so evident by the changed hearts That the gospel has triumphed in. Hearts in whom the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. It's so clear. That the book we hold is the truth. And it is so clear that the message we proclaim is the only hope. And it's so clear that this hope. Will carry us through the darkest days of this life in a broken, fallen world. We're so thankful, Lord, for who you are. And because of who you are, what you have done. May your mercy and your grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ be evident to us this morning as we find you revealed in your word. Bless it now, Holy Spirit, take it and apply it and place it into areas where no human can go and where no man can change or know. Holy Spirit, you meet these people with your word right where they need it. And we pray that you would receive greater glory and honor because of it. And we ask this all for the sake of the Lord Jesus, our strong Savior, our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 3 this morning, we are finally at this seminal passage that has affected so many of us over the years of our lives. And this morning, as we begin our study of John chapter 3, I think the argument could well be made that this is the most public slash private conversation that has ever occurred in human history. The most public and yet most private interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's certainly one of the most consequential conversations that has ever occurred in any realm, private or public. And so as the pages turn from John chapter 2 and the events of Jesus, first in Cana, transforming the water into wine, and then at the temple, cleansing the temple, and making that bold prophetic statement of his own death, burial, and resurrection, we come to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is familiar in large part because of verse 16, isn't it? John 3:16 is perhaps the the most well-known and most recited verse in all of scripture by by Christians and by non-Christians. You can find this this iconic verse on everything from graffitied walls to home decor signs to billboards to poster boards at ball games. This is the most familiar place I think for Many of us. And yet it is also at the same time unfamiliar. It is uncharted. You say, Brian, why would you say that? I mean, everybody, even unbelievers, know John 3.16. How could you say it is unfamiliar and uncharted? And here's why I would say that. It is uncharted and unfamiliar... Because there are principles and foundations that are laid in John chapter 3 that cannot be overlooked. And yet, too often, the the foundations and those pivotal underpinnings are absent in our thinking about John 3.16. To say it another way, you can't just simply go to John 3.16 and begin there. You must begin with everything that came before it. It can't be overlooked. These these foundations must be considered. They must be factored in as we think about this glorious chapter. And so let me read now the beginnings of this conversation Jesus has with this man Nicodemus. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you, did not, you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him... Will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so this morning, I want to begin to unpack and understand and dive into the depths of the new birth that Jesus speaks of here in John chapter 3. I want to do so with great intentionality. I, I don't want to just simply keep plowing through without digging down and pouring the foundation deeper and stronger and more robust as we move to understanding the gospel and move to understanding what it is that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about. The answers that Nicodemus is seeking in this dialogue are predicated on believing the foundations that that God has laid up for us in this gospel up to this point. Let me say it another way. There is no way that you will be able to milk the richness and the glories and the the triumph of our salvation from the end of John chapter 3 unless you have wrestled with all that Jesus is from John chapter 1 verse 1 up to this point. And so it provides an opportunity for us to go back and to bring ourselves up to speed and to place ourselves once again in the totality of this gospel so that we grasp all that is there and that we build on that solid foundation. We're all versed in the whosoever of John chapter 3, verse 16, but we must be equally versed in the Lord of the whosoever. In other words, there must be truth clarified as it relates to Jesus. If he is going to be looked to as the Savior, in John chapter 3, verse 16, he must be known completely for the Savior that he is. The point of John's gospel, you will remember in our introductory sermons to this book, is to introduce the Messiah to us and then show us that the Messiah is Jesus himself. If we mistakenly read John's gospel, if we, if we read it for any other reason or if we just simply want to hurry and get to verse 16 and, so that we can pray a prayer and, and skip over everything, we've missed it. That is certainly the glorious pinnacle for our own conversion, but it is not the glorious pinnacle of the book as a whole. Jesus is. We dare not ever separate out the salvation Jesus offers. From who Jesus is. We must see them together. And the the, the confidence that we possess. In our salvation. Comes from who Jesus is. In John chapter 2. You'll remember it's been several weeks. Since we've been here. So it's helpful to have a time of review. But you'll remember in John chapter 2. The people are enamored with Jesus. Aren't they? As they were throughout his ministry up until the end. But what are they enamored with Jesus over? It is his works. It is his signs, isn't it? They are so thrilled by a man who can give sight to the blind, who can heal the lame. Hey, a man who can save the honor of the groom at a wedding and turn water into wine because he hadn't purchased enough. They love that Jesus. They love what Jesus can do. And yet when we come to the end of John chapter 2, what do we find in verse 24? But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them because he knew the hearts of all men. They believed in Jesus in a superficial way that focused on what Jesus could give them rather than on who Jesus is. And as a result, Jesus doesn't believe in them. And we ask the question, you'll remember, we may say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. The real question is this, does Jesus believe in you? It doesn't matter what we say about Jesus. It matters what Jesus says about us. And if you want further clarification on that, read the end of Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I'll say to them, depart from me, I believe. Never knew you. Despite what you say, you know about me. Here it is, is the, the tragedy of, of John 2, is that they, they loved Jesus for his signs. But also in the same chapter, they were scandalized by his zeal for purity. They were shocked that he would come into the temple and do what he did. And essentially, Jesus is rebuking them by saying, listen, this is not about the signs, it is about the Son. Jesus is unmoved by their superficial nod of the head or tip of the cap because he had done certain things. say, well, Brian, why are you belaboring this point? I believe the point because we are guilty of the same thing of the Jews in Jesus day if all we do is run to verse 16 and say give me eternal life and now let me go rather than to sit at the master's feet and know who he is We are just as guilty of sign-seeking if all we want are the benefits of knowing Jesus without Jesus himself. And I will say to you plainly and without apology that the gospel is Jesus Christ. He is our hope, not our experience, not anything else. Jesus himself is our hope. Therefore, we dare not run through this chapter through the consideration of the new birth, without considering the Lord of the new birth, which Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to do. My, like the hymn writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground, no matter how spiritual sounding it is, even laced with Bible verses, if Christ is not the foundation, it is sinking sand. And so we find the absolute necessity of Jesus as the foundation for the Christian life. And so this morning, I want to just quickly show you from the beginning of John till now, eight foundations that Jesus is for John chapter 3. Jesus is these things, and therefore the new birth is what it is because Jesus is who he is. And so we'll do a quick jet tour going all the way back to the beginning of the of John's gospel. So, if you would go to John chapter 1, and first we find that Jesus Himself is the foundation as the sovereign creator, He's the foundation of sovereign creation. We read this in John chapter 1, verse 3 all things came into being through Him. Now, let me ask you a question How many things? came into existence because of Jesus. Everything. All things. Is anything left out? No. All things means all things. This is everything of every category in all the world. Everything that has been made is made because of our Jesus. He is the sovereign creator of everything. That is a critical foundation and a critical principle as it comes even to the gospel. Because the gospel, like the created world, has come into existence because he made it so. Not because we say it so. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. And is that it not exactly what he is saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? The wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it comes from, but if you're born again, it's because the Spirit, like the wind, moved upon you. And if you are born again, that's why you're born again, and if it's not, that is why you are not. All things have come into existence by Jesus' sovereign, glorious work as a creator. John begins his gospel by saying, listen, here's one thing, Christian, you've got to know. If it exists, it exists because of Jesus. Bar none. No exceptions. Jesus is the sovereign creator of all things. Scripture is emphatic on this point. Nothing comes into existence but by the word mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. He is the source and the existence of all things. Everything without exception. And this principle, as I said, must be applied completely, Broadly, liberally to everything. If it exists, it is because Jesus Christ as the word sovereignly declared and decreed it to be so. Now, all Orthodox Christians, all Bible believing Christians look at this and we all agree in terms of the physical creation of the world. We do believe Genesis one, right? Jesus was there. And Jesus spoke all things along with the Father, according to Colossians chapter 1, all things into existence. And we're in agreement about that. But here is the the pivotal point for John chapter 3. It extends to the spiritual realm as well. That is the point that Jesus is making to Nicodemus in this chapter. Yes, Nicodemus, I created the world. Yes, Nicodemus, I created all things. And that will include all who believe in me. It is because I've created faith in them. I have breathed new life into them. All things, all things. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord himself, it is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. True physically. Physically. True spiritually. Why true spiritually? Paul says it in both Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. So that no man will boast in his presence. No man will boast. No matter how bad on this earth, we want to take credit for our existence as Christians, whether physically or spiritually. We will never do that in his presence. Someday we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we will say to him, it was all you. From beginning to end, you are the creator. The creator God. Mankind has an innate allergy to that truth. We want to destroy everything God made and remake it in our own image. Nicole and I were talking this week and it's truly unbelievable what we see in the world around us, isn't it? That there is a lust for the destruction of humanity at every single level. If they're conceived, abort them. If they make it out of the womb by no thanks to the world's help, then we will malign them. We will disfigure them. We will mutilate them. We will try to change how God made them in their uh, gender makeup. We'll do everything we can to destroy what God has made. You know why? It points to a creator. And Satan hates the one who created. He's been in rebellion against him since the beginning. He's in rebellion against him today. And wants nothing more than to destroy the very truth that God is sovereign creator of all things. That's true in the physical world. It is true in the spiritual world as well. By allowing us and planting pride in our heart to say, you know, I'm a self-made Christian. I contributed in some way to my salvation. No, you did not. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're not born a second time by your own will, just like you weren't born a first time by your own will. It is by the sovereign creating good Work of God. You see, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus had an issue. Like all Pharisees, like all humans, pride. Self made individuals. And Jesus is cutting the legs off and saying, Nicodemus, you must bow the knee to the reality that, as John has already said, I am the one by whom all things exist. And without me, nothing exists. Secondly, there's a foundation of a created life. Verse 4, in him was life. In the word, in Jesus is life. And the life was the light of men. What is created is created for life. And only in the word, the Lord Jesus Christ is life. There is no life outside of himself. Jesus exudes life. Somebody ever ask you, what is Jesus like? It is not inaccurate to say he is life. He is life. Nicodemus, as he comes to Jesus, he is perplexed about new life. What what is this new life? What is this new life, Jesus? What is this new birth that you're speaking of, Jesus? Jesus? Nicodemus' confusion comes in part because he's forgotten the lessons of his, old, his own Old Testament. And that's why Jesus says to him, Whoa, 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 Nicodemus, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Which some take to mean that he is the, the chief of the Pharisees. He is the chief scholar in all of Israel, the expert in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, No, wait a minute, Nicodemus. Shouldn't you be teaching me? I've never been to school. You have. Oh, teacher, and yet you've forgotten some of the most fundamental lessons that that there's a foundation of created life here. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, which Nicodemus should be readily drawing from, says this. Speaking of the new birth and and the new covenant, God says through Ezekiel, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will become clean. Who does the sprinkling? Who does the cleansing? God. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. New birth, new life, new creation. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Isn't that what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in the same language? The Spirit, Nicodemus, the Spirit. And you cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Nicodemus, have you forgotten your own scriptures? There is created life in me. I am life and it comes by my Spirit and only by my Spirit. I'm not simply coming to amuse people with signs and to affirm your self-righteousness because of your lineage, because of your training, because of your loyalty to all things Jewish. No, I'm here to shatter all of that. And I'm here to remind you that I create because out of me comes all life. Later, Jesus will say in this very gospel, doesn't he? And you know the verse. I know you do. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am what? The life. No man will come to the Father but through me. And what is he? The way, the truth, and life. He's created life. He exudes life. Life is all that he is. He is dynamic. He is eternal. He is unstoppable. He is immutable. He is life unending. Nicodemus, like every fallen human being steeped in religion, is only part of a system that has no ability to give life. That comes only from Jesus himself. And Jesus will build upon that truth from John chapter 1, verse 4. Not only do I create all things, I am able to create all things because I am life in myself. Third, there's a foundation of illumination. Look in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. There was the true light, meaning Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him get down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is a foundation of illumination that Nicodemus is missing as well. Jesus is the one sent from God to illumine all men, to shine light upon the sins of men and the hope of a Savior. No doubt, Nicodemus, like like so many people who saw Jesus, who observed his ministry, wondered, by what authority do you do this, Jesus? How do you do this? Let me remind you that Satan also exist in the realm of counterfeit and Satan has always had counterfeits you remember all the way back to uh, the account of Israel and Moses and Pharaoh uh, when Moses worked a miracle Pharaoh's magicians did what? worked seemingly similar miracles in in the days of the apostles there was Simon the magician and others in the book of acts who who attempted to uh, imitate what The apostles did or what Jesus himself commanded them to do. But what they cannot do, what they cannot uh, imitate is Jesus' illumination. Jesus came to illuminate certain things. And what did he come to illuminate? The Father. He came to show us the glory of the Father. Nicodemus, I'm not just another sign worker. I am here by everything I say and by everything I do to point you to the Father as the one sent from the Father. You will only know the Father through me. Notice. In verse 11, this is at the end of verse 10 and continuing on to verse 11. In chapter 1, this is rejected by the very world he created. The very ones that he shaped. The very ones into whom he breathed life. The, the very ones reject him. Jesus says, I'm here to illuminate your minds. I'm here to show you certain things. And yet you reject it. Nicodemus, you're, you're rejecting it. In favor of your own perceived goodness, in favor of your own religion, in favor of your own DNA, you're missing the point, Nicodemus. Why does Jesus need to come like that? Why why do we need illumination? Why is it necessary for our salvation that, that our minds, our eyes have to be opened? because of sin how many of you have ever had the very discouraging experience of speaking to a lost loved one, a lost friend, a lost neighbor, coworker and you just knew, i mean the gospel to you makes so much sense and you speak to them and it is like talking to a brick wall anybody ever had that experience that's disheartening, isn't it? Why is that the case? They don't have the illumination of Christ. Spirit hasn't opened their eyes. It's through the glories of Christ. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. And you can't discern those unless Jesus Came and illuminates and reveals and shows. According to John chapter 1, that's what he came to do. Christ illuminates. And for Nicodemus, who has all the law, he has all the prophets, he has all the covenants, he has the fathers, he has the traditions, he has the DNA, he has the pedigree, he has the training. And and he's just perplexed that he can't grasp what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying, it's because you're rejecting me, and I'm the key. You'll never decode the puzzle, as it were, without me. You must accept me for who I am, for what I am. I'm a foundation for illumination. But then fourthly, back in chapter 1, again foundational to understanding, chapter 3 is this idea of adoption. Jesus is the foundation of gracious adoption. Nicodemus is having a really hard time here, folks. I, it depends on what commentator you read. Some ascribe kind of malicious motives to Nicodemus coming to Jesus. He wants to trip him up, Kind of wants to make him look bad. Some say, no, no Nicodemus was coming just simply uh, kind of in an academic, detached way of just wanting information. And, and yet another group says, no, Nicodemus is sincere. He's coming by himself. For himself, he really wants to learn. And I would say, I find myself in the last. I believe Nicodemus really was trying to grasp it, but he hadn't. And he couldn't yet. And one of the reasons that he can't yet is because he can't let go of his own system of merit. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Jew. I'm the teacher of all the teachers. Kind of like Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I've got it all going on for me. Nicodemus is having a hard time. And wouldn't you? If that's what you've been told your whole life. That's why we need illumination to shed light on the, the situation as it really is. Not the situation as we want it to be. And so poor Nicodemus, he's struggling. And what he's struggling is. He's struggling with. This principle of adoption, this principle of God's gracious act toward us in which we contribute nothing. And so, I, I, you know, that's a struggle for me, too. I understand it is for all human beings because of our pride, because of our self-sufficiency. But here's what we read in John chapter 1 in verses 12 and 13 that lay the foundation for what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus to help Nicodemus over that hurdle. He says this, but as many as received him, who's him, Jesus, the word, the one in whom life exists, but as many as did receive him to them, he had given, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, here's the real, the knife is in at this point, And here's where the knife gets turned a little. To excise the cancer of pride. These people were born. Are you ready? Look at verse 13, chapter 1. Not of blood, Nicodemus. That means not of your pedigree. You're not born a follower of Jesus. You're not born. A Christian. I don't care who your granddaddies were, I don't care who your parents are, I don't care who your siblings are, you're not born that way. And then he twisted a little more. Nor are you born of the will of flesh. You are not born, Nicodemus, again, because the outward conforming pressure of the Pharisaical Society or any society or any group has. Forced you to comply outwardly with a religious system. You are not born that way. In my kingdom. And then as to take one more leg out from under him. He says nor are you born of the will of man. You are not born into my kingdom because you want to be born. Nicodemus, (coughs) you come because I have placed you there. I gave the right of adoption. I caused you to be placed into the kingdom. And he he says that as much (coughs) in the first seven verses as he speaks about the movement of the Spirit of God. You can't be born on your own. You can't be born again from from your mother. This must be an act of God just as I said it was, just as the the word says it was all the way back in chapter 1. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, our salvation. Not, Not just Nicodemus, us. Our salvation, our acceptance before the Father does not rest in our achievement. It doesn't rest in our accolades. It doesn't rest in our lineage or heritage handed to us. It depends only on the gracious adoption of Jesus Christ of lost sinners. This really puts the screws to Nicodemus' argument. He says, Nicodemus, it's kind of like your physical birth. What part did you have to play in your physical birth the first time? Nothing. Okay. What part do you have to play then if you were adopted? Nothing. So you're created and you're chosen, Nicodemus. That's the way in to the kingdom. And remember who I am and remember how I work and remember the principles and foundations I've laid out for you in John chapter 1. That that, that key phrase comes to us at the end of verse 13. But of God. That's the only way in. But of God. God we go to Ephesians chapter 2 Paul is going to great lengths to help us understand this he says you were born dead in your trespasses and sins and he goes on and on and then he gets to that pivotal turning moment and we love that phrase and a great many golden sermons have been preached but God but God Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, but God. Nicodemus, this is the only way in. And I want you to be in. But you'll not come in just seeking signs. You'll not come in relying on your own goodness or your own self-will. You'll come in because God brings you in. Because God brings you into this world. It's a humbling reality, isn't it? It's quite a helpless feeling. But strength is made perfect in weakness, brothers and sisters. Fifthly, there's a foundation of divine revelation. Go back again to chapter 1. Verses 17 and 18 and then again in verses 33 and 34. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He, meaning Jesus, has explained him. Man's most extreme problem is that he is not right with God. That is your fundamental problem. Apart from Christ, you are at odds with God. God is angry with you. Um, God may love a sinner because he is God's creation. And that is true. We can say to people, God loves you because he created you. That is true. But to go around to the world, to the lost and say, God loves you just like he loves me is not true. Because the scripture tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. And that is why there is an imperative to move from that realm being wrong and out of relation with the father to being in relation to the father so that we can tell them then God loves you not only as his creation, God loves you as his child. We are not all God's children. We are all God's creation. Only those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Are his children. And we must be careful to make that distinction, lest we confuse and play a part in others' damnation, thinking that they're fine when they're not. Knowing they're eaten up with the cancer of sin and not telling them so. That is unloving and unkind, brothers and sisters. And Jesus is is making that distinction for Nicodemus. Listen, Nicodemus, you're not in the kingdom. Because you are not right with the Father. I am the only one who knows the Father. I'm the only one who can make right with the Father. The only way in which we can be right, the only way in which we can see God, is through Jesus Christ. And and here again is the fundamental problem that we don't understand the holiness of God. We think that God is just like us. He is nothing like us. He is holy in everything that he is. And we are fundamentally unholy. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, tell me how great a sinner you are. Everything about me. There's nothing good in me. Paul says, I know this in my flesh dwells. No good thing. And the no good thing that I am. Is the very thing that provokes the righteous good and just wrath of God against me. Because every sin no matter how small is cosmic rebellion against a holy God. And I do not. And I dare not. Neither do you. Waltz. Carelessly into the presence of God. Thinking that somehow I'll be accepted. No, you will be consumed. You will be consumed. You can't even see the Father. You can't even know the Father. You can't even look upon the Father. And He certainly will not look upon you. Because of our sinfulness. And That is why we need Jesus. Believer, here's the reality. That was you. That was me. Before Christ, we couldn't even get close enough to know the Father without being consumed. Ask Isaiah what it's like to be in the presence of God. Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, he's the big, bold priest. Woe to Israel! Woe to Israel! I mean, he's laying it down. He is a preacher's preacher. And then God ushers them into the throne room in chapter 6. And Isaiah, who, who had visions of grandeur and personal righteousness, all of a sudden encounters the holy God, and he falls like a dead man. And no longer is it woe to Israel, it is woe to Isaiah. Woe is me. Under judgment am I because I am a man of unclean lips where do lips where do words come from the heart isaiah is saying I'm completely undone before a holy god I can't know him I can't even be in his presence and yet here we find jesus saying in john chapter 1 verse 17 and 18, I have come so that you might be. That you might know God. I'm the only one who can reveal Him to you. I'm the only one who can facilitate your being in His presence, being in His bosom. Why is that? Simple explanation. Profound truth. Because on the cross, Jesus Looked at his son, I mean, the father looked at his son Jesus and saw you and saw your sin and punished your sin. So that now, when the father looks at us, he sees his son. What an exchange! And the only way that happens is because Jesus, who has been in the bosom of the Father, he comes and explains him to us and ushers us into that presence. Nicodemus has to grab this concept in chapter 3. That apart from Christ, there is no relationship to Yahweh in his understanding. There is not a shred of hope that he is right with Elohim, the strong creator. Nicodemus is as lost as the pagans up in Caesarea. He is as pagan as Caesar is in Rome. Apart from Jesus Christ. Oh, the Son came to make the Father known. And to make us know the Father. He's a foundation of Revelation 6th. He's a foundation of confirmation. When we get to verses uh, chapter 1, 19, down all the way through chapter 2, verse 11, that's a big portion. But we find that Jesus lays a foundation of one confirming everything that he has said in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. I want to just quickly review with you what happens here. There can be no doubt that Jesus is who he has said he is in in John's opening, in his prologue. We have the testimony of John the Baptist who divinely was sent to prepare the way for Jesus before uh, he came. He is the forerunner of the gospel. So much so that we read in Luke's gospel that when Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, at the same time come into each other's presence, that John the Baptist leaps in the womb. <laughs> I believe that's because he knew he was in the presence of the Messiah. Supernatural. At Jesus' baptism, Jesus is confirmed. The voice from heaven, the Father, thunders This is my beloved Son in whom I am. Well pleased. The spirit confirms by descending upon Jesus. The call of the first disciples prove it. Jesus in his omniscience knows them. He knows things about them that no man could know. He knows where they've been and he knows what they've been doing. And they are absolutely baffled. Surely this man is the son of God. Otherwise, how did you know I was taking a nap under the tree? How do you know these things, Jesus? At the miracle of Cana, he brings the, as Bruce Milne says, he brings the wine of the kingdom of God into the the pathetic water of Judaism. You guys thought this is what it was? Here's what it really is. He thunders his character. He thunders who he is by his acts. Then he goes to the temple and he he takes authority in the temple and he cleanses the temple. Why? It's his. That's his house. That's his father's house. And I and the father are one, as he'll go on to say many times throughout the rest of John's gospel. You're polluting. I have the authority. Where did I get the authority to do this? Where, Where would I not have the authority to do this? I created the stones that made it. I instituted the altar to be built for my worship. Everything about this points to me. You guys can't see any of it. He cleanses the temple. Then he he demonstrates that he is who he says he is by his omniscient rejection of superficial and spurious faith. You don't believe in me. You like the sign. You don't love me. You love the benefits that come along from following me. You are, to use our vernacular, you are a fair weather friend. And weren't they? So much so that by the time we get to John chapter 6, where are these people who believed in Jesus? Running for the hills. You know why they were running from the hills? It wasn't because the Roman soldiers were down with swords saying, do you believe in Jesus? You know why they were running for the hills? Because everything that I have said to you from John 1, this morning was repeated by Jesus in John 6. And when they heard it, they said, these are hard sayings. (coughs) We can't tolerate them. And they left. So much so that Jesus turns around to the twelve. And he says, do you want to leave also? No, Lord, we're with you all the way. Up until the crucifixion. And then they too ran. Jesus is confirmed. He understands. He knows men's minds. Only God can do that. He's no hybrid Jesus. There are no hybrid versions of Jesus. He either is or he isn't God. And by being God, he either is all of these things or he isn't any of them. No hybrids. Seventh, Jesus lays a foundation of exclusivity. We find that in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Jesus will tolerate no false truth. He will tolerate no false worship. He will tolerate no false faith. No one else was making the claims that Jesus was, nor were they able to promise what Jesus promised. He was, he is, and he will always be exclusive. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. And we can say that and we can look at that from a negative perspective and say everything else that exalts itself and tries to pretend Jesus is a lie. And we can look at it positively and we can say, oh, there is no one that saves like Jesus. Go read the book of Hebrews. He saves to the uttermost. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the sacrificial. Jesus is better. Because he's exclusive. None like him. Nicodemus had to embrace this. Jesus lays it out for Nicodemus. Listen, Nicodemus, this is built on a foundation of exclusivity. I'm not here to see how I can work in tandem with your system. I'm not here to to hear your arguments about how you should be able to get credit for time served in the pharisaical system. I don't care. It is me, the son of man, who must be lifted up. Not you, not the Pharisees, not even Israel itself as a whole. The son of man by himself on a cross. For your sins is the only way, Nicodemus. And unless you reckon with that foundation of exclusivity, there is no hope for you. No caveats. No nuanced Jesus. No alternative interpretation of Jesus. No, may I say it this way, personal faith which by by the way i think that has become code in modern evangelicalism for well i have my personal faith meaning i don't really believe what the bible says and what jesus says i have my own way of looking at that which is to say you have no way of looking at a saving jesus scripture alone is sufficient scripture alone is the authority and if i if i have a concern about modern christianity in our own context in the western world it is that we tend to contextualize Jesus nuance Jesus and allow people to just have whatever Jesus they want and Jesus says no 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 you you don't understand I am the one who bears all authority that's why I'm cleansing this temple you have no right to say anything other than what I have said and commanded that's it that's why you're all going. Enough of this. No nuance, no caveat, no alternative interpretation. It's Christ as He is revealed in Scripture, or it is nothing. Last, there's a foundation of divine providence. Look at chapter three versus, or chapter two verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. And and when John, in his gospel, talks about observing his signs, he's telling you this is what they're really believing in. Because Nicodemus is guilty of the same thing just a few verses later. And that's why Jesus is having to correct him. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. How foolish we can be to think, you know, I don't really believe all of that. I'll just smile and... and, and, kind of nod and okay and pretend to go along with it. Here's the reality God knows. though. We, we tend to say things like this. Well, God knows my heart. And you think that's a good thing? He knows. He knows spurious faith from true faith. He knows where you've tried to. Alter he he knows where you've tampered with the gospel in your own thinking he knows those parts that you're holding back going no I don't accept that but I'll take this like you're at a buffet Jesus knows and these people outwardly man we'd be signing them up putting them on church membership rolls real quick because they came to they, they said they believe writing their name down give them a job and Jesus says whoa Hang on. I know what's in the heart. Not so fast. You see, there's still much teaching to come. And there's still a crucifixion to come. And then there's persecution to come after that. For those who really do follow me, still with me? I know what's in your heart. And I know it's just to get what you want. To scratch your religious itch. Jesus knows our heart brothers and sisters. Do we believe. Him. Are we relying on him. Have we humbled ourselves before him. In case you haven't picked up him. Is the operative principle here. It's Christ. Christ. Jesus. And poor Nicodemus, again, I'm not trying to beat him over the head, you know, as if he's the apostle Peter, which we also like to slap around a little bit. I think Nicodemus is really seeking. But Nicodemus to this point is really seeking in the wrong way. He's still too much in the way. And he's not really grasping who Jesus is. And Jesus knows his heart. Just as he knows our heart. It all must be put on the scrap heap of sinful and pagan thinking. And surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, if this is what you've said. This is what is true. This is what I believe. I may not understand it all. It may baffle the mind. It baffles my mind. But if you said it, it's the truth. I will accept it by faith. All of it. All of who you are. It's the only way we can come to him. And let's read the first three verses of John 3 in closing. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, do you hear any problems with that statement? I hear several. And we'll get into those next week. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, oh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this is the reality. Here is truth. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, it's only by your mercy... By your sovereign birthing of sinners, regenerating them, granting faith that they might believe, granting understanding that they might submit that we become yours, that we enter into your kingdom as your children. Everything else about us, Lord, and you know this. Everything about us is simply this, that we are un. Profitable servants, unworthy, unable, unwilling to believe all of these things. And so, Lord, I ask that you would overcome pride, that you would overcome self sufficiency, that you would overcome every obstacle for everyone hearing my voice who has looked into your word together this morning in these passages, overcome all of that, Lord, that they might be one by your Spirit, convinced of the things that we have seen of Jesus, that they would hold them as truth. And in so doing, Lord, that you would Save those who have not yet come in that kind of faith to you. Who've held out, who've nuanced, who've compartmentalized, who've tried to make a hybrid of the gospel and of you. And Lord, for those of us who, by your sheer grace, not of anything we've done or contributed. Who do know you as Savior, fill our hearts with overwhelming joy. And confidence in who you are Lord Jesus. And let us see in the coming weeks. As you deal with Nicodemus heart. May we understand more how you dealt with our hearts. And may we rejoice at your unequaled power in salvation. May we give thanks. For we love you. And we pray this so that you would be glorified and your kingdom would be expanded. It's in your name, Jesus, we ask for these things to be done. Amen.